Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. One of the issues we face in dealing with problems in the USA is the frequent divide between the common folk, rural, often farm folk, and the urban populace, often dismissed from the other side as ivory tower intellectuals. This is often far from the truth, and today's Spirit in Action guest, Daniel O'Connell, raises up the lives of those scholars who have bridged the gap and use their knowledge to even out the economic and political turf in California's San Joaquin Valley in his thesis-turned-book, In the Struggle, Scholars and the Fight Against Industrial Agriculture in California. In a century-long struggle, scholars have been fighting the suppression of the compelling evidence that family-sized farms are better in virtually every way for the community, be aware that there are several major bonus excerpts on the northernspiritradio.org website that couldn't fit into this broadcast, including some deep reflections on Daniel's Peace Corps service in Namibia. Right now, we join Daniel O'Connell in California via Zoom. Well, friend Dan, it's so good to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Likewise, Mark. Such a great pleasure to join you today. Tell me, where exactly in California are you? Or maybe you're in New York. I forget. It seems to be a, a long trail between the two. <laughs> yeah, I live in Fresno, California, the heart of the San Joaquin Valley, which is the location of the book we're going to be talking about. And my co-author, Scott Peters, is a full professor in global development at Cornell University. And the book arcs between those two campuses to a certain extent, a long-term collaboration between various scholars. And Scott and I carry on that tradition. So why is that? I mean, and you know, you're going from Ithaca, New York, all the way over to California. You could hardly get too much further away from each other, and yet they seem inextricably linked. They are in a lot of ways. First of all, I'm a product of the University of California. I went to undergraduate at UC San Diego. I got a master's degree after returning from the Peace Corps in Namibia at the University of California at Davis in International Agricultural Development. It was at UC Davis that I became aware of a certain narrative and history and value orientation that land-grant universities have. Uh, land-grant universities coming out of the Industrial Revolution, and they were really an education geared towards farmers and workers and democracy building. There's multiple variants of that narrative of what land-grants are, but that's the one I like to carry forward. And so I was aware that, first of all, Cornell has a lot of tension internally because Cornell is both an Ivy League school and a land grant. And the land grant was built to a degree as a counterfoil to the idea of an elite education that the Ivies represent. So Cornell University is wonderful juxtaposition and tension between how knowledge is produced and for whom. The second piece was, as I became aware of the controversies of the research that I was looking at in California and knew that some in the past doctoral candidates were not able to finish their degree, especially at Berkeley a few decades ago, I didn't want to trust my research in the University of California. I wanted it to be away and insulated. The other final piece is, is that Cornell is an Ivy League school, and I knew that I wanted to use the dissertation as a weapon, as ammunition, the credentialing of an Ivy League school, a prestigious university in our hierarchical system, 
was going to validate and legitimize it even more. And because I knew the potential of it to be attacked. I want to start off, though, by introducing our listeners for Spirit in Action to one overview of the book. And I think this is so well put. I just this past week got my copy of Western Friend, the one for January and February. And there's a review of In the Struggle. It's done by Clara East. She does a wonderful job in just a few paragraphs of talking about some of the important aspects of the book. And so I'm going to quote here from Clara East. It says, Friend Daniel O'Connell has made the root causes of this poverty the focus of his doctoral research at Cornell University. His dissertation has now been adapted into a book for a general readership in the struggle, scholars, and the fight against industrial agribusiness in California relates the history of public institutions undermining the livelihoods of the family farmers and rural communities they were intended to assist and support, institutions that include universities, state and federal governments, and publicly funded projects like the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project. Inevitably, a few powerful industrial agricultural interests came to dominate these institutions, control the whole region, distort democracy, and create the perpetual poverty that exists in California's Central Valley. The next paragraph does a really good summary as well. It says, in the struggle also describes efforts to push back against moneyed interests and how those efforts have been suppressed. In one piece, O'Connell describes the history of a seminal piece of socioeconomic research, Goldschmidt's 1944 Arvin Danuba case study. This work compared the civic life of two towns in the valley, one surrounded by family scale farms and the other dominated by the large industrial agricultural interests. The study funded by the Department of Agriculture demonstrated that a town surrounded by large corporate farms was impoverished in every measure as compared with a town surrounded by family farms. Goldschmidt's work was vigorously suppressed from the onset and continues to be challenged today, but it is yet to be refuted. Clara does such a great job there of catching so much of the information. This book is a bit over 300 pages, and a lot of it is narrative. And that's something that's really both cool and wonderful. As when I got used to going through that, I mean, most books don't quote as extensively as you do. I said, wait a minute, Dan is doing in this book the kind of research that some of the people, Walter Goldschmidt, Paul Taylor, and so on, they want to do narrative research. And I don't know if that's parallel at all, but instead of just doing statistical research, which so many people favor, this felt like narrative research. Was this an intention on your part? Yes, because I think human beings who probably convene for 20,000 generations around campfires hold and share and carry knowledge best through stories. It's a very instrumental and powerful way to produce knowledge through statistics and quantifiable measures, empirical measures. And you see Dean McCannell do that absolutely powerfully in his chapter. He uses sociometric, he uses regression statistics to retest Goldschmidt. But this book is really co-authored by 10 people. The eight subjects of the book are themselves authoring their own and narrating their own stories. And many of them, because of the brackets put on scholarship, couldn't actually name the pressures that they were feeling and were put under while they did their studies. They couldn't put that into their articles or their reports. 
that, you know, they were receiving threats against their lives and their livelihoods. You know, I think that the backstory of the pressure put upon these scholars is actually an added layer of validity to show the truth of what they're stating and saying. I think we're in a moment where there's a lot of misinformation in our society and a difficulty to express and understand and articulate and ground shared truths. One of them is, are you willing to suffer for your ideas? You know, just (laughs) here, pure and simple. So these folks, you witness them sacrificing for the community and for our democracy. So it was purposeful. And of course, it's a method that I learned to a significant extent from Scott Peters, who's an expert in narrative and storytelling and how to do a profile of work. And so I learned from Scott how to actually condense somebody's experiences into a story. Did you have a connection to the San Joaquin Valley ahead of time, or did this come up as part of the study? No, I'm a Californian. So there is really two dramatically different Californias. The California that the world knows is a coastal California. It's the Bay Area, it's beaches, it's elite. It presents more progressive in some sort of fashion than the interior. We are more like Kansas here. It's changing because of the demographics, how diverse this place is in the Central Valley now. But I became aware of the issues of the Southern San Joaquin Valley. And when I say that, I'm talking about basically Fresno to Bakersfield, Kern County, north to Madera County. That is a region that I think we can say is endemically structured to be oppressed, especially along racial lines. This is very similar to what is the American South, the Mississippi Delta, and in some ways structurally, economically similar to Appalachia. And so the Southern San Joaquin Valley has been, it's the paradox that's cited in the book is the most productive food producing region in the history of the world, ironically has the highest levels of poverty, pollution, and hunger. And the hungriest people are the farm workers themselves. Those are the kind of paradoxes that invite in both activism and academic inquiry, which this book strives to bridge. Well, and to some degree, I think the book is really advocating that our scholars should be activists. A lot of universities don't want to permit that. You know, you have to be antiseptic scholarly study, if you will. I'm just putting out numbers. I don't have to have feelings about them. Knowledge is not neutral. There is no neutral. That's why you have a politicalization of an academic theory called critical race studies, which is really the American history told from the position of those that have been racially oppressed, which is probably the more accurate run that most of us have read Howard Zinn and went into an ethnic studies and these kind of, these are the probably the more truer narrative for the majority of American people than the cleansed version. Objectivity defaults always into a power structure that in our country has that objective is oriented towards those in power. Some of the people that you talk about, the stories that you provide, they actually came from Wisconsin, where I'm from. They migrated down to provide their ideas in California as well. One of the most telling points that you share in the book, Dan, is when you talk about how stuff in the San Joaquin Valley, this massive industrial agribusiness stuff, it's like plantations. We had it before in the South, where you have a very low income, low rights, humanity treated as low humanity, people working on the plantations, that this was being duplicated there, but it wasn't so in the Midwest, the area I'm from. 
that was a mind blower for me. I'll tell you that just to realize that agribusiness could be a recreation of the plantations, that upped my anxiety right away. This book is coming home in literally our conversation today. I'm a Californian. Scott, my co-author, is from Illinois, but just on the border of Indiana. But I will say that the values of this book are Midwestern values. The values of family farmers and of a democracy that Thomas Jefferson first referenced, but I think is there's an, an idea of agrarian democracy now. If we're going to have a democracy, you must have a stable, equitable society. That is a foundational finding coming out of this book. And it comes out of how the development of the Midwest was first settled, which already is problematic because of its white settler history, but it was settled in roughly a more egalitarian way. The Homestead Act had 160 acre farms, and so many of the homesteads originally were more broadly family farm based. That Midwestern basis is what Paul Taylor grew up with. And when he ends up coming out to do his doctoral work and ended up being a professor at UC Berkeley, it hits him right in the face how absolutely dramatically different that is. I would say that looking at history, you would say it's plantation agriculture. But Paul Taylor and his wife, Dorothea Lang, the photographer of the Dust Bowl and one of the most famous documentary photographers in American history, named it in their book, American Exodus, of Latifundia, how the Roman Republic arcing into empire consolidated its land holdings. Later on, the word Latifundia applied to Latin America, especially Central America. For instance, the 1980s, El Salvador, the Arena Party. 10 families own 90% of the arable land, and you basically have fascism there. I think that coming up to the present moment, what I would name what is happening here in the Valley, what we've structured and put into place is a form of neo-feudalism, and that feudalism inherently is not democracy. Unfortunately, over the course of the history that you cover in the book, In the Struggle, the history of what's true in the Midwest has gone more in the direction of California rather than the reverse. That is to say, we would have hoped for the democratization of the agriculture in this area of California. But in fact, what happened instead of replicating what we have in the Midwest, Midwest has gone more and more to these immense factory farms, stuff that does not serve the people or the land or the future of humanity well at all. So I felt very sad in just watching the history. Even though there's so many bright spots along the way, I still feel up, end up feeling sad and feel urgently how we need to change this for the future of our country. So you see how rough it was. Uh, what happened in California, there was literal political violence. People were killed here, especially labor organizers. There was uh, violence that was extraordinary. I do think that the narrative of what has happened here and what is currently happening, which is an intergenerational and especially multiracial organizing and affinity and networking to push back in California's Central Valley, how dramatically things are changing right now here for the better. And the dialogue between what never happened here, which was farmer-led organizing, which did historically happen for generations in the Midwest, we can learn from the Midwest on how farmers organized, especially 100 years ago, and are still organizing today, and how we can potentially, how California, I think the book, we took lessons, the values of the Midwest, you can't prove values, right? 
values are innate. They're just beliefs. So that's why the humanities is there to philosophize and discuss. So I believe in democracy. I'll just state right now, I am in deep affinity with the oppressed. That's my position. I stated as a researcher, those Midwestern values of an equitable family farm based diverse economy where capital is circulating locally before it flies out of your community. Those were applied to the Arvin Dinuba study and were placed on top of all of the empirical and scientific studies that are in this book. Now we have a case where California, because agribusiness needed to have farm labor and invited in Chinese, Japanese, some people were leaving genocides like the Armenians and the Hmong coming out of wars. And of course, the complex interrelationship between Mexicans and Americans in California because the San Joaquin Valley is so diverse, and the Midwest is much more diverse than people realize as well, this is an opportunity. And I'll finish by stating what I finished the introduction with is quoting Isao Fujimoto and coming back to what's happening here today. Isao, at the end of the first chapter, we quote him as saying, it is said that if we are going to make any sense of what we are doing, we have to know what story we are in. And so this book, based in narrative, is inviting people to hear the stories of what happened in California and apply it to their own context. And it might be a better explanation for the hardships that some folks in other places in the United States, for instance, the Midwest, rather than scapegoating immigrants, this narrative of how your economy is structured and for whose benefit is probably much more going to long-term guide you towards alleviating your problems than scapegoating already people who are being taken advantage of. Exactly. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people tugged in the wrong direction on that, something that's not going to help our future at all. Let's talk in a little bit more depth about what Walter Goldschmidt did, what the Arvind Danuba study is. I think that really Clara East summarized it nicely, but I'd like you to expand upon it. He compares two different cities, and these cities are in dramatically different areas. One is an area of principally family farms, small scales agriculture. The other one's where you've got industrial agribusiness going in that direction that it's really intended. And he studies these too. Say in your own words what that proved, what that showed. The study was done as the federal government was poised to build dams and canals in California through and under a law that was named the Reclamation Law of 1902. Now, The 1902, Teddy Roosevelt's president, Republicans are progressive, and there's a pushback on economic monopoly and trusts that are hurting communities and taking advantage of especially workers. So the law is constructed in a unique way. The federal government is going to build dams in the western United States that is an arid region. When you bring water to arid land, you go from being able to graze cattle and maybe do dryland wheat to growing strawberries, avocados, almonds, pistachios, 300 different crops, and now suburban subdivisions as well. So the speculative value of the land jumps dramatically, especially if you're a large landowner. The law is constructed in a way to not benefit already wealthy landowners. So the 1902 reclamation law that authorizes the funding of the construction of the Central Valley Project, it stipulated three things. First of all, if you're going to receive federal water, you need to live on the farm. Second, you needed to be a farm of 160 acres or less, 
If you're married, it was interpreted to 320 acres. And finally, if you sign a contract to receive this subsidized water and you had a farm of above 160 acres, you were allowed to receive that publicly subsidized water for 10 years. But after 10 years, you needed to sell all land in excess of 160 acres at pre-water prices. So the 1902 Reclamation Law embedded a land reform into its provisions, a voluntary land reform. The importation of this water was designed to benefit small family farms. The federal government is ready to put in this huge investment. Progressive Midwestern senators are backing it. Therefore, the government knows how probably difficult this is going to be and already is facing pushback potentially. And the Bureau of Reclamation, who's going to build the dams, contracts with the Bureau of Agricultural Economics, which was a substantial federal bureaucracy at the time, to do a study to determine whether these unique equitable provisions of residency, limited land holdings, and land reform should be implemented. Walter Goldschmidt was the person that was hired, along with his boss, Marion Clausen, but it was Goldschmidt's study to determine whether reclamation law should be put into effect in California. To find out the answer to that, he came to the Valley and he compared two towns that are similar in scale and history, but in two different geographies. One was surrounded by small family farms. That was the town of Dinuba and a town that was surrounded by DiGiorgio Farms, the largest agribusiness of its era, that was surrounding Arvin, which was the other one. So it's a case study of what is better for the economy and civil life of a rural community, one surrounded by large land holdings or one surrounded by family farms. Empirically, he looks at, really importantly, the retail sales of each town, Dinuba, the small family farm town, had twice the retail sales inside the town than Arvin because those small farmers are purchasing goods and services in town. And money and capital is circulating in town rather than flying out of the town. But there was other outcomes beyond economics that became prescient here. One was the number of churches, PTA, civic groups. Arvin was unincorporated. Dinuba is incorporated. Arvin had one school, Dinuba had four schools, the number of churches, religious affiliations, on and on and on, numbers of doctors. You can have many metrics of community benefit in civic life. And so the farmers and the small entrepreneurs they were funding in town were volunteering on PTAs. They were running for political office. They were ready to defend their interests against larger scale businesses if in that need arised. And they invigorated the civic life of the town, whereas Arvin was surrounded by itinerant farmers that were working on wages, not entrepreneurs that owning their own businesses. And so you find that not only was there empirically proven economic differences between the towns, that there was dramatic civic differences that both affected how the democracy was functioning in those towns. Finally, the other outcome of the Goldschmidt study is how it was received. The government paid for the research and immediately censored it. <laughs> so they never let it go. And then... Does that mean it wasn't published in any way, shape, or form? It was later published because senators from Wisconsin and, and Minnesota and other that were progressive in the time demanded that it was, and they brought it forward in their committees. And so it was eventually published. The best thing to make something popular is to censor it. <laughs> and so... Um, <laughs> 
And then a very other important part of it. So the story starts getting out and it was already attacked. The study was attacked while he conducted it, which is in the book. But the treatment of the study afterwards was really important. And the final facet I will say is, is that Walter Goldschmidt had planned to do a follow-up study using statistics of 25 towns, which is a much higher level of academic rigor because the case study, there's other reasons why maybe Arvin was having these negative measures than Dinuba. Statistics is much more objective, if you would say, or rigorous in an academic scientific sense. That follow-up study was disallowed and suppressed, and it was only conducted decades later by Dean McCann at UC Davis. That politicalization of the study itself becomes a cause celeb of what is ready to happen. I also just will say that the book begins with Walter Goldschmidt because I met him at the end of his life when he's 94 years old. He passes away a few years later. And just to establish our voice in the book and it being told from a first person point of view, and also his study, the Arvind Dinuba study has a biblical reference. It was called As You Sow, in reference to the biblical saying, As You Sow, So You Shall Reap. So, I was able to meet with Walter Goldschmidt and establish a kind of ethnographic narrative voice from me and Scott's position as authors that tell, kind of sprinkle our orientation of the following stories. But the two subsequent chapters and folks in the book, Paul Taylor and Ernesto Galarza, had passed away before I started the study. So the book is overarchingly chronological, but not precisely so. As you said, Dan, really, in some ways, the starting point for this is the reclamation law in 1902. I had trouble wrapping my mind around reclamation because I I was thinking kind of like uh, recycling or something. But we're converting desert into agricultural land. So there's ecological issues embedded also in this book. Again, folks, the book is In the Struggle, Scholars in the Fight Against Industrial Agribusiness in California. So I already mentioned this whole narrative research. There's some question on some people's parts, and I don't think really I have any issue with it at all. But the scholars who are doing this study Some people think that they shouldn't have an opinion, they shouldn't have values, and they should only deal with numbers. Now, you already talked about your own viewpoint on that. In the disciplines that we're talking about, things that used to be called, what, rural sociology and many other names, many people took them to task because the way of approaching things wasn't the standard scientific protocol. They did do standard academic rigorous protocols. These folks did. Early on, these are extraordinarily rigorous studies that are done. Goldschmidt study, McCannell's studies, Villarejo studies, Taylor studies, though Taylor methodologically was moving all over the place in a lot of ways. I think with Ernesto Galarza and some hybridity with Villarejo and then Fujimoto and then moving on to Trudy and Janaki, you see that it's not enough to prove empirically, scientifically, something as factual, that to actually realize it in the world, there was a need to educate and organize community. And therefore, translating the findings and beginning to share where knowledge is produced and for who, to realize that the farm workers are just as knowledgeable as the academics, 
And the book's title, In the Struggle, invites scholars into where problems are occurring because that is the only real place that a solution can be defined and effectively articulated. This work of campus-based scholarships can come under critique because it's distanced from, in the social spheres with, with humanity, that it's sometimes too distant. So it can come under a critique of being conjecture or speculative in that way. So you need your students, your graduate students out. I think a lot of professors rely on their students because they're teaching. And if they've been teaching on campus for a lot of time, the society is moving, the context, the geographies are changing. And I think they're more reliant than they know on graduate students and undergraduate students. So you see Villarejo and Fujimoto begin to utilize undergraduates even as researchers themselves in the production of knowledge. They are much closer to the communities that have experienced there. They're often right out of today, farm worker communities, and therefore know even what are pertinent research questions asked and might have better access into the new approaches to build knowledge and data, if you will, on how to solve them. You need to bridge knowledge production to its actual problem-solving ability or capability in the world. That is a part I truly enjoyed about the stories that you bring forth of in the struggle. You talk about a number of these academic located people, and sometimes they were right in the university, but sometimes they were one or two steps removed. So they're, they're doing the kind of research that's rigorous, but they're doing it without the constraints of the hierarchy or the, maybe the inherent conservatism of a large institution. They're negotiating those constraints. The ones that are on campus, you see the pressure. Paul Taylor is investigated by the FBI. You know, he was not given a promotion for like 10 years. You have the chancellor of UC Davis warning Dean McKinnell that he could be killed for doing his studies. You have Don Villarejo with the Kellogg Foundation offering to fund um, farm labor specialists for cooperative extension system for free after all of these subsidies university is given to agribusiness. And then you have the UC system turn down this very generous offer to just fund five farm labor specialists. This is corruption on an astounding level. This is scary stuff when you realize that the laws are not being put into place. Even reclamation law in 1958, a US Supreme Court decision was 9-0 that reclamation laws, acreage limitation, residency requirement, and land reform should be put into place, it still was not implemented. So it's awesome to realize how unequal the power is, and that Paul Taylor forewarned us. Remember, he already knew that there was a consolidation and a monopoly on land. He was fighting because water rights are connected to land ownership. He was fighting against the potential for a monopoly of water ownership on top of land ownership. And he says, we are in for some very rough times if that happens. It's in the book. And that's precisely where we are now. I'm optimistic on the organizing, on how communities are understanding how they're being oppressed. The power structure is still in place that is oppressing them. And it's much worse in a lot of ways than it was during the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, when this book is taking place. The corporations are dramatically larger. It's been a geometric progression so that they've been immensely large. And so instead of having a regionally effective group, you know, someone who affects your county or your region that way, you now have corporations that are large enough to blackmail the entire state. And it's really totally frightening. And, and I chuckle at that simply because it's so uncomfortable. 
one of the things that a number, or at least several of, I think it, it grew over time, was to take students on campus, undergraduate students, and say, okay, you're going out for some months out to do research interaction out in the community. I think that's wonderful. I think it so enlivens the life of a scholar to not be isolated from the community within the university to get out there. Talk a little bit about those programs, the people who did it, and what that led to. So the first example is in Don Villarejo's chapter. And although it's not in this book, but it is in the dissertation, Dean McKenna references it, the mobilization of students against the Vietnam War that occurred and how undergraduate students were doing surveys, sociological surveys to, to affect the public understanding and justification of the Vietnam War. And it was very effective, the student mobilizations in stopping the Vietnam War. The more pertinent one is Isa Fujimoto, who is my mentor. You see him interacting with me in the book via a series of email exchanges, just a few of many, guiding me in my research. But I was a graduate student when I met him, as in he was already a retired emeritus professor in my department, and I knew him in that regard. I did not know Isao Fujimoto when he was teaching courses at UC Davis. Isao Fujimoto is hired by the University of California as the first rural sociologist ever to be, that we know of, hired to actually work as a rural sociologist under that disciplinary title at the university. So imagine places like University of Wisconsin had robust, huge departments of rural sociology, Purdue, Indiana, everywhere. Cornell all had rural sociology departments. California, with its anomaly and all of its enormous problems with land holdings and industrial consolidation of its agricultural economy, never even permitted the discipline of rural sociology to exist until the 19, late 1960s with the hire of Isa Fujimoto and then subsequently Dean McCannell, both coming out of Cornell's rural sociology department. So Isa Fujimoto, he lands at UC Davis, I think in 1967, and it's an absolute tumult of student organizing, the civil rights movement, anti-war movement, racial are all happening. Esau is tasked with basically developing, they didn't name it rural sociology, and it's a mix of community development and rural sociology, but the department they create, because the students demanded it in the 1960s at UC Davis, the students demanded relevant education, which again comes back to the land grant and its pushback against the Ivies and this distanced education. During the civil rights movement, during the anti-war movement, students demanded their education be pertinent to problem-solving the conditions that were affecting their lives. And they were just simply not going to class anymore. They were sitting down on railroad tracks to stop munitions, trains. It was absolutely mess for the administration at the University of California and potentially all universities in the United States at the time. Uh, you know, at Kent State, Jackson State, students are being killed for some of these actions. So Isa Fujimoto was tasked with developing the Applied Behavioral Sciences Department. What a name, right? It's just an Orwellian kind of name. But that is the department where all the student activism is, starts coalescing around. And they coalesce around the leadership of a movement leader that is a professor who was interned during the Second World War. And that is Isa Fujimoto. And Isa Fujimoto even deeply affected my life and world, still does. And there is absolutely thousands of students, uh, previous students that are out in the world because of Isa Fujimoto. So Isa Fujimoto does what his students are asking him to do, but he also, I think, understands that it's good pedagogy. 
he sends them forth into the San Joaquin Valley, to the Mississippi Delta, to Appalachia. And by the way, these aren't sending students out with insurance. And the students are basically learning as they go. They themselves write methodological papers and um, course material for later students. And some of their advice is how to live in a car, how to find free food. So how to survive manuals. So it was much more applicative, as I write in in the book, it bridged a Peace Corps manual with SNCC organizer survival skills. That's the intersection of what these students were doing at the time. They were entering into community and relationship with the oppressed to problem solve. This is exactly what they wanted the universities to do. And I think as we move forward into the era of climate change and into the era of organizing for an equitable economy and a tolerant society, we will need to revisit what the students were doing in the 1960s under Isao Fujimoto, which is deploying the greatest capacity of the universities as the students themselves into action, research, participatory learning, experiential education directly with communities that are oppressed. So, you know, what does it look like if the Anabaptist Mennonites and Quakers are doing Christian peacemaker teams? What does it look like to have students actually entering into the struggle as we enter into a period of existential crisis for humanity? We will need to do that. There's so many elements of that I want to talk about with Daniel O'Connell, but first I want to remind all you listeners, this is Spirit in Action, our website, northernspiritradio.org, links, so you can find a good place to get a hold of Daniel O'Connor's book, In the Struggle, Scholars in the Fight Against Industrial Agribusiness in California. You'll also find connections to some other of the related people and businesses and organizations that he references in the book. We'll have them all on Northern Spirit Radio. Also, we have connections to all of the people we've interviewed for the last 16 and a half years. There's just a wealth of people doing world healing work, and certainly that's what Daniel O'Connell is involved at. Dan joins us today from California. I'm in Wisconsin, but we're talking about something that affects the entire country. Northern Spirit Radio programs are run on community radio stations all across our country. And the state with the highest number of stations carrying my programs is actually California, where Dan is located. Just remember that you should support your local community media. Community radio stations are so awesome in terms of both the news and the culture that they convey because they are rooted right there in the community. So please support them first. If you want to support Northern Spirit Radio, just look under support. There's a donate button and you can do it via our Facebook page, all different ways that you can help us out. But I really would start with the community radio stations first. That which is planted locally is your most important asset. Again, the book, In the Struggle, we're talking about many elements of it. Dan, you were just talking about the student activists out there in the field. But how did your experience in the Peace Corps lead you to your struggle against industrial agriculture in California? It's not a straight line, exactly. No, You know, I think one of the things is it oriented me to the life of, in this case, subsistence farmers and agrarian communities and survival in those contexts and how beautiful it is and how difficult it is. I was an activist for my whole adult life. So I was just maturing as I went into the Peace Corps. And it was that opportunity to address the problems of American support of apartheid. 
when I came home from Peace Corps, it deeply changed me. I still feel a lot of my identity is connected to Africa. I'll just say Africa broadly. There's a lot of Africas. You know, these were communal people that did share land. They didn't privatize land ownership there. Every adult male member of your family was the equivalent of your father. So the idea of who's in your family was super broad. So my counterpart had an income from the government. The first thing we did was go buy huge bags of mealy and distribute that. So the obligations, social obligations were a great insulating force against hunger. And I realized that there was larger amounts of hunger and homelessness in the United States than in Namibia, where I lived where people earned one to $2 a day just because they shared better. And it was embedded in their culture not to allow people to die exposed and hungry. And there was different facets of their culture that I witnessed and understood. So, you know, I always have had a problem with how unjust and racist the United States was. I just began to temper that in my indignation and anger and began to move towards can knowledge and organizing community solve these problems? And of course, I've chosen a purposeful nonviolent path in life, very similar to Gandhi's Satyagraha. I'm a Quaker and also a Buddhist practitioner. So I purposely walk a nonviolent path in life that I think for all of us that do that integrally connects us to social justice causes. So when I returned from Peace Corps, I wanted to go back to Sub-Saharan Africa because I simply felt I was used well. I felt like I contributed. And so I got into a program that basically trains program managers to do international development, which is International Agricultural Development Program at UC Davis. Afterwards, 9-11 just happened and I didn't get a job abroad. And I'm kind of grateful for it because the professor that recruited me to come work with him at Davis said, Dan, why do you want to go back to Africa? The San Joaquin Valley of California is Peace Corps with resources. And that's true. <laughs> a really good point. You can be in charge of bringing civilization to the USA from Namibia. And a lot of people think that would be a false statement or somehow misleading. But in fact, there's a, a fair amount of civilization that we're missing in this country because we've ceded our power to economic giants. Exactly. And, you know, it's very awkward to do that international development work. And I feel much more, even though we still, especially men, especially folks that identify from this white background, need to be very careful on how we interact. And uh, we have to constantly be interrogating our own identity and positions as we enter into solidarity with some of these groups that have suffered grievously in the past, especially Indigenous folks and African-Americans. Um, you do have to be cognizant of the politics of identity and culture all the time. And yet, humbly living with those folks that are experiencing those is very life affirming. I will say that Galarza's, the title of Ernesto Galarza's chapter, and Galarza is in the book, is speaking to Mexican Americans and Mexicans in the United States, and that's his community he's organizing for, is terror is education. And it comes from a quote that he's asked later in his life, the terror of education that Galarz is referencing is that if you're going to do this work as an activist scholar or a politically engaged scholar with deep relationship over years with community, you're going to witness injustice that you can't solve. And that's the terror he's talking about. And that is keeping your sanity and your balance in the midst of oppression is difficult. It's extraordinarily painful to witness these injustices. And yet the least we can do if we have this privileged position is hang in there and to do what we can with these communities. 
We've talked a fair amount about Walter Goldschmidt, Paul Taylor, Ernesto Galarza, Dean McCannell. Certainly, Isao Fujimoto we've included, Don Viorejo. The last two people that you name in your book or that you approach much in the way of their stories, I, I particularly love Janaki's story. Trudy Wishman is another really valuable and important one. Our society is transforming over the decades that this book covers. And I'm so glad that it got to the point where it could raise up people like Trudy and Janaki. We saw just a glimpse of Dorothea Lange, but I think women were given short shrift in our culture a hundred years ago. So what would you highlight from the life of Trudy or Janaki? And I even feel a little bit bad referring to them by their first names because everybody else was a last name. Galarza, Taylor, Goldschmidt, and now we're going to Trudy and Janaki. So Trudy Wishman, I wanted to include into my dissertation. And she said at the time, I'm not a scholar because she was always put Paul Taylor as a kind of a pedestal, I think, on what you needed to be to be a scholar. And I pushed back, but I ended up not including her at that time. Trudy Wishman knew all of the six scholars from my dissertation, everyone. So Walter Goldschmidt, Paul Taylor, Dean McCannell, Don Villarejo, and Isa Fujimoto, Trudy Wishman worked for or with all of them in different ways. Only Ernesto Galarza did she not work with or know. Trudy Wishman finishes her undergraduate degree. You see the difficulty she has negotiating higher education. I think there's some ways that she wanted to do work that weren't admitted into the institutions, into the academy. Trudy Wishman does something that none of these men do. Without even having the degrees, she moves to the San Joaquin Valley. When I first met her, she handed me a card. It said simply, Trudy Wishman, rural advocate on her business card. And that's exactly what she did. These were her heroes, her mentors, her friends. Walter Goldschmidt referred me to go find Trudy Wishman because Trudy was a tender of the Visalia Friends meeting. I already was aware of her, but I didn't know at the time how instrumental she was to this work. She worked for the California Institute for Rural Studies for Don Villarejo. She worked in and with Dean McCandle's Macro Social Accounting Project at UC Davis. She was a collaborator with Isa Fujimoto. So Trudy Wishman shows that you don't need these degrees to come down here and to be in the solidarity. So she's barred from maybe using that title of scholar because she didn't finish her graduate work. She does use other titles. She's a journalist. She's a preacher at a Methodist church. So she comes from a, a white, working-class Republican background, brings in religion, explicitly religion as an organizing frame. These are definitely communities to be interacted with. And so I think she just has a lot to show that we need to live our lives with the communities we seek to assist and serve. And Trudy has done that to a great extent and showed me a lot of ways of how to interact, especially with farmers. When I first came here, I had kind of homogenistically seen all farmers as one. And there's a big difference between these corporations, these large-scale landowners or land barons, the smaller-scale farmers, and farm workers themselves are farmers. Many of them from Southeast Asia, the Hmong, are great farmers, often leasing land. And many indigenous folks from Mexico, especially Oaxaca, we call them farm workers, which I'd say shows you the inherent racism in our society that we have a name for the actual true farmers, the people with their hands in the dirt, we call farm workers. And in our discourse in America, we know that that's a racialized term. When you hear farm worker, you don't think of a white person necessarily. 
And so those are also farmers. And Trudy was one to really introduce me to farmers when I moved here. She's extremely, extremely an emotive, passionate person. When she gives a presentation, she could break into song. She's a singer as well. She uses music in her organizing, deeply so. And she might cry. You know, she just, she feels deeply with community and people. Well, let's talk about Janaki too. I, I think I fell in love with Janaki in the course of this. I, some of her wide-ranging methods, passions, floating, I also was impressed by her. So at the end of her introduction, of her paragraph in the introduction, I say, Janaki is our entryway into the coming uprising. And that uprising is a benevolent uprising of folks struggling together to make change. When I first, I had been in the International Agricultural Development graduate group at Davis, Janaki was after me as an undergraduate. Uh, she brings in a bit of that story. I lived in the Domes Cooperative. Janaki lived in the cooperatives in the Domes as well after me. These are consensus decision-making student-led housing cooperatives. So Janaki and I had deep affinity. We had people that bridged my time as a graduate student there and her later undergraduate studies at Davis. There was people that knew us both, but we didn't know each other. When Janaki took her job with California Rural Legal Assistance as a community legal worker here in the Valley, I got a call from a friend from Davis saying, do you know who's coming down to the Valley? Janaki. Janaki Jagannath is coming. I didn't know her. And so we became friends. We still collaborate to this day. I mentioned to people that you don't have to necessarily read the book in order. And when I talk to young people of color, BIPOC organizers, young women, I say, don't read this book in order. I say, you should start with Janaki Jagannath and then read Isa Fujimoto and then read Ernesto Galarza. You should read the intro and conclusion first and then skip around. Don't read the book in order because I don't want the clunkiness of the white guys in the front to... Janaki speaks to the current moment and to this very intersectional kind of organizing that's bridging efforts around social, racial, environmental, economic justice. And she's really showing us how to do it in a wonderful way. Janaki does, her chapter does a lot of other things. It shows you as she is on the west side of the valley, and the valley has different kinds of agriculture east to west. The east side of the valley is under the mountains. It's better soils, better availability of water, and smaller scale agriculture. As you move west, the Central Valley Project built out in the 1960s and 70s, the last parts of that brought water to the west side of the valley and to Kern County. And then the State Water Project built in the 1960s also did that. So the industrial scale agribusiness is in the west and south of the San Joaquin Valley, which is much more arid. It has much poorer soils generally and larger scale agriculture. Janaki, in her telling of her work with CRLA, introduces you to the issues that both McCannell and Villarejo show in numbers. Janaki shows you first person what's happening there in the midst of a 500-year tragic drought where people are losing their water and the unresponsiveness of the Fresno County Board of Supervisors and the state of California and the federal government initially to the drought and how it was affecting farm workers and rural people in unincorporated colonias in the San Joaquin Valley's west side. Janaki shows you that the importation of water by the federal government and state of California did nothing to help rural people. In fact, you see how absolutely horrific the conditions are that they live under. It's unnameably unbelievable what that context is. You can't really describe it, though she does but you'd have to experience it by coming out to going to Huron or Mendota or Fireball or Cantua Creek or El Puvenir 
These are the places that Janaki is organizing. She's trying to understand the context and through her narrative and storytelling that is presented. The final thing that Janaki does is she articulates very importantly for all of us, the hope, the aspirational where we want to go, which is the idea of agroecology, not monocropped, single cropping of endless orchards of cotton or, or almonds, but a diverse food system that integrates ecology, human well-being, and community health. And so that is agroecology that's coming out of the global south. And she's articulating that just as the sprinkle at the end to point everyone to where we need to go, because we can't just fight against what we don't want. We need to name where we're going. And so Janaki names where we're going, that agroecology, that diversity is the way to both produce knowledge and to mirror as much as we can ecological processes in our production of food and our well-being of securing our communities. I hope all you listeners are as enthused, excited, and impressed by the work in In the Struggle by Daniel O'Connell and Scott Peters. We'll have a link to the book. I think you should follow up with it. Read the various stories. As Dan says, you don't need to read them in order. You're going to be impressed by all the different ways that we can contribute to making good future. Again, this book covers so many important issues. It's not just agriculture, so to speak. It is ecology. It is democracy. It is economic justice. It is racial justice. There are so many different important elements that all come together in a confluence of a book called In the Struggle. I hope you'll get a hold of it, and I hope that you'll take the time to listen to Daniel Connell. And he's got other writings, too. They're coming, and I'll try and link to the book review in Western Friend, which will give you just a one-page capture of it. I just was wondering, Dan, did they capture the interview you did with Western Friend back on January 11th? Did that get recorded? Is it online? I think it's recorded. You'll have to check with Mary Klein on where to find it. I do want to send out a big thank you to Mary Klein because it's through Mary Klein that I connected with Dan because she knew about his book and she pointed me in this direction. So I'm so glad that she did. Uh, again, Western Friend was that resource. In the Struggle is another resource. We've got them linked on northernspiritradio.org. But mainly, Dan, I just want to say thank you. Your passion, your insight, your depth of study, your depth of heart are all valuable gifts to the world. Thank you so much. Mark helps meet. Thank you so much. And I hope to see you in person in Wisconsin in the coming year or two. I'll look forward to that. Again, folks, the links are on NordenSpiritRadio.org. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of